The topic today is our own holdbacks. And today it's my turn. And of course, we're talking about the fear of being fabulous. Like most people, you probably suffer from some form of the fear of being fabulous. We'll bet you do. After all, most people suffer from a variety of holdbacks, failing over and over to live up to their full potential. They're afraid to be all that they were meant to be, and they know it. How does this apply to you? How are you living with frustration, disappointment, procrastination, and anxiety? It doesn't matter whether the fear of being fabulous is affecting your work life, your love life, or it could be showing up in any area of your life, even hobbies and pleasure. You see, we both had to overcome the soul-draining undercurrents of this fear in many areas of our own lives. And now, when we teach this topic, we are always struck by how nearly everyone laughs, giggles, or blushes when we start talking about the fear of being fabulous. When we ask for examples, we hear about how people are afraid to ask for promotions, reluctant to speak up at meetings for fear they'll be seen as arrogant or aggressive, shy about asking someone for a date or even a get-together for coffee. The examples are endless, but the results are the same. People are held back by internal forces beyond their conscious control from living their fullest, most fabulous lives. Hi, I'm Judith Shervin. And I'm Jim Snikowski. We're a married PhD psychology team, and we welcome you to this episode of our Overcoming the Fear of Being Fabulous podcast series. This time, it's Judith's turn, and next time it will be mine, as we introduce ourselves to you in some detail regarding how we experience the fear of being fabulous in our own lives. We started exploring this topic when we were first dating and discovered that we had both been professional actors earlier in our lives. And we had both walked away. We'd both left it behind. Walked away from the success we both experienced. Success that came effortlessly. Success that had always come with substantial Screen Actors Guild and Actors' Equity League union-based incomes. Neither of us had ever worked for free. We were never starving actors. Quite the contrary. And yet, we walked away, leaving it all behind. Why? As Jim said, today's podcast is dedicated to helping you understand a bit about my background and how it affected my inability to hold on to success in my early years. Next time, you'll hear Jim's story. We're trusting these background insights will help you pin down some elements in your own earlier life that are still affecting you now. All right, today I'll share with you what I call surviving in a world of mad, misbegotten misfits. Little did my parents know when they met in the recreational ping pong room at a trailer park in Englewood, California, that both of their mothers were traumatized by this material world and rarely associated with anyone outside their immediate families. Instead, both of my grandmothers routinely sought comfort and salvation by going to evangelical Christian tent meetings, separate from one another, where they would over and over again go up to the altar to be saved. But that never truly satisfied their hunger for safety and salvation from what they called, quote, 
this corrupt and heathen world, unquote. My mother Helen was at the trailer park with her parents and two sisters while they looked for a place to rent, having just arrived in Los Angeles from Des Moines, Iowa, where my grandfather had worked as an overnight security guard, and my grandmother, always ambitious in her way, ran their home as a boarding house. It was located in the fancy section of the city, which they could not otherwise afford. This required my mother to attend the area's Beverly Hills-type high school, often without lunch money, and always dressed in her older sister's hand-me-downs. My father Ralph was there with his two brothers on their way back to Minnesota after their band, the Shervin Brothers Rodeo Lears, had played in several Gene Autry movies. Despite a claim for their music and film roles, they were prohibited from performing in clubs or theaters in Los Angeles or anywhere in California because they belonged to the Musicians Union in Minnesota rather than the Union in California. So they felt forced to abandon their dream of growing a successful musical career. My parents, Helen and Ralph, married two years later, 1939, in Las Vegas. It was a simple courtroom ceremony as they had no money beyond the meager income my father earned selling spices for a company called Ben-Hur. Having lost his father to the flu epidemic coupled with pernicious anemia in 1999, which then required his mother to work three jobs to support five children, my father dropped out of school in the 11th grade to help out. Consequently, my father had no interest in having children. But my mother persuaded him otherwise, and four years into their marriage, I was born. My mother lived a life of anxiety, and certainly during her pregnancy, there was ample reason for heightened anxiety beyond the reality of growing a new life in her womb. Frightful World War II news headlines were coupled with the breadlines that my mother regularly had to stand in to get her rationed foodstuffs. Six weeks after I arrived, my father, who was a conscience objector on religious grounds, had to report to an alternative service firefighting unit of like-minded men in the mountains above Fresno, California. With only minimal visits home to see his new family, my father would be away for the next two years, leaving my mother to survive accompanied by her loneliness, depression, grief, and ever-present anxiety and the task of caring for a newborn baby. For nine months in the womb, I was surrounded by and connected to the anxious nervous system of my mother. Then, when the hour of my birth arrived, the charge nurse kicked my father out of the delivery room even when he pleaded to stay, explaining that he'd birthed many a farm animal in his youth. Then, after a traditional father-forbidden, hospital-dictated and drug-infused birth, I was brought home three days later to a grief-filled environment as my parents prepared for my father to leave for camp. My limited ability to bond and attach played out in my relationships at school. I never connected with any of my teachers. In fact, my fourth grade teacher held her wedding during the school year and invited all of her students. But I was the only one who didn't go, feeling like I didn't belong there. And while I got along with all of my elementary school classmates, I was never close with any of them. Instead, I played with the neighbor girls in the summer and on weekends simply because they lived next door and across the street and 
we were all the same age. But since I never felt any meaningful attachment, we never became actual friends. Consequently, I never cared what we did. If they suggested hopscotch, roller skating, Chinese checkers, or the card game canasta, I'd go along just to go along. This absence of desire played out in my relationship with academic excellence. While I had the brains and got good grades, it all happened by rote. I was raised to be a dutiful girl, so I didn't rebel against school even though I found it incredibly boring. I simply did what I was told and did it very well because I could. In fact, all through junior high I was on the honor roll every semester, which I took for granted rather than understanding that I actually excelled. Consequently, I never even considered attending college except as a way to meet an eligible husband. Now, when a child is uncared for beyond the material requirements of food, safety, and bodily comfort, the unconscious lesson is that life is merely about coping and getting by. And that was certainly true for me. I have almost no memory of my early years and only began to retain glimpses of my childhood experiences around the age of nine when I began to wear what was then called a training bra. Yes, I developed very early. And by 12, I looked 18 and won a beauty contest. That's when my conscious life actually began. And that's when I started modeling at the Del Mar Beach Club in Santa Monica, earning $5 for each Sunday night fashion show. That led to getting an agent and my first television commercial when I was 14, followed by my first acting job on the Ozzie and Harriet television show. My career continued to grow such that I earned over $10,000 every year of high school and was able to put myself through UCLA, paid for living in a sorority house, and bought my own car. After UCLA, I went to New York, where I continued working, making over $50,000 net in 1967, which would be approximately $375,000 today. And then... I quit acting and I quit modeling and I moved back to Los Angeles. Why? What I told myself was that I needed to get married. That was what my conscious mind told me. That was what I'd been raised to do, get married. What I discovered only later in discussion with Jim was my own version of the fear of being fabulous. I was making far more money than my father had ever made as a salesperson. My mother had never worked, and my unconscious allegiance to them caused me to feel that getting married was what I needed to do rather than continue acting and modeling. Growing up in my family, there was never any mention of career or ambition, unheard of. So I'd never viewed my acting as a career. In fact, when one of my agents in New York asked if he could manage my acting career, I never even discussed what he had in mind. I simply said, no, I need to return to Los Angeles and get married. I trust this gives you a solid glimpse into my background and how the fear of being fabulous played out in my early years. Next time, Jim will share a bit of his growing up background to fill out your beginning insight into how we both came to care so much about people about you gaining the internal permission to live 
their fullest, most successful lives. Until then.